you're wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff. Give me a full ballerina skirt and a hint of saloon and I'm on board. Mm. Welcome to the She Became Visible podcast. I'm your host, Renee Steelman. This podcast is my story. It's your story. It's our story. It's all the stories of all the women who one day knew that it was time to remember who they were, who they are, and stand up and be seen. Hello. Welcome, everyone, to She Became Visible. Thank you for joining me today. I'm really excited to introduce you to my guest today. And for many reasons, but for one of the reasons, one of the reasons that I'm excited is we're going to put LDS church history in a corner today. We're not talking about that today because the theme of this broadcast is highlighting and recognizing women who have stood up and said, hey, I'm here. Do you see me? I have value. I have worth. I'm making a difference in the world. And so that and that is the story of all of the women that I have interviewed. But today, this person that has stood up and become very visible was also very instrumental in making another historical woman extremely visible. And if it wasn't for her, this woman may have just kind of gone away and people would not have recognized her amazing gift to the world that she had given. So there's many things wrapped into my guest today. So let me start out by introducing you to her. And I have to start out by saying, I'm, I'm really sorry that this guest, you know, she just, she hasn't really done a lot with her life. And, you know, I, when I met her, I thought, oh, you know, she's a nice person. I probably out of the kindness of my heart should have her on my, on my show. Okay. That's not true. Wait till you hear this resume, people. If you were feeling the least a, a bit invaluable today, you might want to just click off this resume reading part because it'll make you feel like you're just lazy and you haven't done a stinking thing with your life. Okay. But let me introduce you. Okay. So Dana Mueller's eclectic career has encompassed not only musical performances, recording and teaching, but also public service and an interest in law and public policy. Over the past four decades, she has taught piano and music theory at institutions such as the University of Houston and the University of Southern California, the University of Hartford, Amherst College, and Mount Holyoke College. She maintained a private studio in Berkeley, California, New York City, and South Hadley, Massachusetts. Her book for adult beginner piano students, Keyboard Images, was used at a number of schools and by teachers in private studios. Ms. Mueller and her husband, Gary, have recorded and concertized extensively as duo pianists. 
Throughout her music career, she has performed in recital with vocalists and instrumentalists. She earned her Doctor of Musical Arts degree from the Hart School, University of Hartford, where she wrote her doctoral, her doctoral thesis on the Scottish-American pianist, composer, and teacher, Helen Hopekirk. And Helen lived from 1856 to 1945. Her research led to a BBC interview and performances of Hope Kirk's music in Scotland. In addition, she brought this neglected artist to the attention of Scotland's leading musicologists, who has included Hope Kirk in the second edition of his history of Scottish music and musicians. Dana Miss Mueller was elected to public office in South Hadley, Massachusetts in 2003 as one of five members of the town's board of select persons, the governing council for the municipality. While serving in public office, Miss Mueller, I love this, developed a keen interest in the interaction of law and society and decided to work on a law degree. <laughs> it's like, you know, I think I'll just go for a law degree now that I finished my, my doctorate in music. Oh my gosh. So she received her JD from the James E. Rogers College of Law at the University of Arizona in 2009, having written her law thesis on an issue related to music copyright and infringement lawsuits. Admitted to practice law in three states, she opted instead to continue collaborating with Mr. Steigerwald, uh, which is her husband, Gary, researching in more detail the life of Helen Hopekirk and performing, recording, and commissioning new works for the forehand and two piano repertoire. Is that not amazing? I mean, you know, I think I got a load of laundry done today and I got my workout in. And while I was doing my workout, then thought of, you know, maybe getting a law degree in um, physical education, it did not occur to me at all. So I'm just going to bring this amazing person on. And before I bring Dana on, I also want to tell you, I met Dana and her husband, Gary, uh, while we were on a tour to Berlin on a Rick Steves tour. They were one of the fabulous couples that was there. And we, my husband and I just gravitated toward them. They're just the warmest, kindest people in the world. And what kills me now is having looked up Dana's music on YouTube, which I just type in Dana Mueller and that's M-U-L-L-E-R. And you can listen to some of uh, her and Gary, Gary's work. And it's amazing. And, and the most frustrating part uh, Judge Dana, I will ask you about is those stupid copyright laws that did not allow me to get that music off of YouTube and share it with you today. Dang those copyright laws. So let's bring Dana on and let her tell a little bit about herself. Hey, how are you? Hey, hey, it's great to see you, Renee. It's so good to see you again. And I had you back there in the, in the, uh, the green room, as they call it for a little bit, yeah. but, <laughs> but I just, I'm just, I'm just so blessed to have met you and Gary, and I'm just so impressed with everything that you've accomplished. And I think what I love the most is that even after going back to school, getting your, your Juris Doctorate, and, and getting licensed in three states, you were still like, yeah, but I'm going to go back to my music and stuff, because that's really what I love the most. And I, that's the joy of 
being who you are and just going through life on this fabulous journey. And I love that. Yeah, it, it's, it took, it took a lot of courage for Gary and me to decide that I could leave him in Massachusetts and, and come out to Arizona to go to law school. He was still teaching at Mount Holyoke College. Oh. But our idea, because I was 56 when I started the law degree, oh our idea was that, you know, I could get a degree in Arizona because we knew we were going to retire out here. Okay. And, um, and we figured he could retire early and I could support us out here being a lawyer. And I graduated in 2009. No jobs were available. No. And that's one reason that I took the bar. I applied to the bar in three different states, Arizona, Connecticut, and Massachusetts, thinking that would give me a wider uh, area to choose from or to try to apply for jobs. But it just, it didn't work out. And during law school, we had performed a little bit, uh, but I really missed the collaboration with Gary. Yeah. Yeah. And um, even though my, uh, paper, my big law school paper was on copyright and had to do with music. And um, my oral presentation of that paper involved performing music and presenting music to an audience. Um, I just, I, I missed, at that point, we were like one body with four hands and, yeah. and one brain. Yeah. And uh, so that, that's kind of how that all happened. The, um, the doctorate for music, I wouldn't have achieved that without Gary. Oh, I mean, that was the hardest thing I've ever done. That was harder than law school. Really? Um, those of us who were doctoral candidates, especially the pianists, were so harassed by the faculty. Really? <laughs> None of us, you know, we had to play a number of recitals in addition to all the academic work that we did none of us passed our first recital that we played and you know that's kind of a kick in the pants there you've practiced and practiced and you've worked and worked to present this program of music and then you're told not good enough (gasps) and it took me 10 years to get that doctorate I got yeah yeah and what was the deal I mean was it was it the the department itself just was had this we're going to kill you or, or you know or to make you stronger or was it an overall uh, college university idea that a doctorate in music was meh? or what was the what was the premise for all of that that particular music school and other if you talk to people in, who worked on getting their doctorates this happens in oh. certain departments oh. where the faculty just feels like they've got a you just cannot be their equal yet. Oh. And once you get your doctorate, then you're their equal. So they're going to make you really jump through the hoops. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And the, uh, you know, for any doctoral student, being able to find a topic for your dissertation or your thesis, however you want to word it, that is a huge search. It's a, it's a big commitment to a topic that you're going to work on for several years, but it's also finding something that nobody else has researched before. Right. And so um, this whole thing with Helen Hopkirk is quite a a story because 
I was taking a course, um, I think it was my second semester at heart, and it was on research and writing. And the professor, that professor was fabulous. And uh, she helped me narrow down my topic for, for that particular class, which wasn't Hope Kirk, but I was doing a lot of research on musicians in New England in the 19th century. Okay. And my resources were very old encyclopedias and books on music from the late 19th century, early 20th century. So a few women had made it into those books by then. There were several women in the Boston area who were developing careers as composers and performers. And this name, Helen Hopekirk, every once in a while would come up. Mm. And I thought, I never heard of this one. I've heard of some of these other women and then I read in, in one source that she rode in the suffragette parade in Boston and that it was such a point of pride for her. And I thought, well, I've just got to track her down, even though I'm researching this other stuff, I've just got to see what I can find. And, and so this was back in the days before internet, this was back in the card catalog days when <laughs> sifting through those little car three by five cards. And uh, they had some of her solo music at the library. It was in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, with, right across the street from Smith College. Uh. And she had written nothing for four hands, but there was, they had some of her solo music. So I go back into the stacks and I'm looking for her music. And there it is just lying out on the cabinet, yellowed paper that hadn't, this music that hadn't been checked out since 1918. And uh, so I take it to the librarian and I said, is there any chance you'd let me take this home to play? Oh. And she says, I don't see why not. <laughs> and I thought, well, Nobody because else it's wants crumbling. It. Yeah, it's, it's crumbling and falling apart. But anyway, so it was a set of pieces based on Scottish themes. And I got it home and Gary was still at school teaching. And so I played through these pieces and I thought these are just amazing. They're just, they've got a charm to them I haven't heard in other pieces. So Gary gets home and I said, look at this music I found. And I played one of the pieces, which was particularly striking. And he just looked at me and he said, there's your dissertation. No. So, okay, so we start trying to find what we can. It turns out there are boxes of materials at the Library of Congress that had been donated by one of her students back in the 1940s after she died. And so maybe a year, year and a half after we started that work, we sent out a Christmas letter. And we said, oh, Dana's working on this paper on Helen Hopekirk. And a couple of weeks later, we get a letter back from the dear man who married us, <laughs> which he was a Presbyterian minister in New Jersey. Well, Gary and I met in New York City. We got married in the National Arts Club in New York City. Neither one of us was associated with any church. And we were going, huh, who's going to marry us? And Gary said, well, you know, I, I, I used to play concerts at this church in New Jersey, this Presbyterian church. Maybe that minister would marry us. <laughs> So he, did, he and his wife were lovely, and his wife was a Mount Holyoke graduate, you know, so she really loved Gary since he was teaching there. But anyway, we sent this Christmas letter. A couple of weeks later, we get a letter back from them saying, we cannot believe that you are doing research on Helen Hope Kirk. Her portrait is hanging in our guest room. No. 
oil portrait. Gary probably slept under it when he would go over there to play concerts. You know, he'd have to stay overnight in their guest room. And it turns out that Mrs. Talca, the minister's wife, her great aunt Bessie was one of Hope Kirk's biggest patrons. And she is the one who donated all these boxes of materials to the oh Library of Congress. <laughs> that is insane. Isn't that wild? Yeah. It, it's just, uh, and of course, Hope Kirk had immigrated, she and her husband had immigrated from Scotland to Boston in the late 19th century. So we actually found a few people who had studied with her oh. back in the 1920s and who could talk about what she was like as a person, as a pianist, as a teacher. And uh, so what, Helen what, Hope Kirk has been part of our marriage. No kidding. What <laughs> year beginning. was this? What year was this that you could find students that had studied in 1920? I mean, uh, 19, people... oh, 1990. Okay. Yeah, they okay. had studied with her when they were young. Yeah. You know, maybe in their 20s. Okay, okay. Yeah, and one woman actually studied with Hope Kirk in the 1940s, early 1940s. Okay. And she, uh, she t had a wonderful, she could demonstrate so well how Hope Kirk played and what it was like to take a lesson with Hope Kirk and said that Hope Kirk helped her prepare a concerto that she was going to play with the Boston Pops. And they worked really hard on it and, and had it shaped just the way Hope Kirk thought it should be. And Denise got to the first rehearsal with the orchestra and the conductor. And the conductor says, no, we're not doing that. We're going to play it straight. None of this slowing down, speeding up. We're just going to play it straight. And uh, so Denise said Hope Kirk came to the concert and never spoke of it again. Ooh. She was so disappointed in the way the conductor and orchestra played the piece. Wow. So, but, you know, that... I mean, those of us who have, who have studied performance from the 19th century as compared to the mid 20th century, we know that musicians in the 19th century took a lot more uh, freedom with pieces that they played. They didn't play them just you know, exactly metronomically and right. put a lot more emotion and a lot more of their own interpretive uh, attitudes into it. I mean, right. you get... You, the composer gives you a lot of guidelines usually, you know, where to play soft and loud, where to slow down and uh, phrase marks and things. But uh, she and Hope Kirk, of course, knew some of these composers in her own time. Gosh. And, you know, played some of their pieces for the first time. Right. And introduced some of their music to the Boston audiences. So, that's Helen Hope Kirk. And we're can, now with the internet, Gary yeah. has just gone down one rabbit hole after another. And as you know, we, he just two months ago discovered someone um, distantly related to Hope Kirk in that her grandmother was the painter of this portrait of Hope Kirk that hung in the guest room in New Jersey oh and that we eventually got, um, we assisted Hope Kirk's distant relative cousin to get it into the National Portrait Gallery in Scotland. 
Oh my so, gosh. Yeah, the, the gallery, we took it across the pond, you know, we packed it up in an old um, suit, with those suit bags that men used to carry on board, packed it in there real carefully, took it across to Glasgow, where Hope Kirk's second cousin lived. And he got it into the uh, portrait gallery. Now, Hope Kirk in her time had turned down the portrait that the portrait gallery had had commissioned of her. She oh. didn't like the portrait that that gallery did of her. Wow. So um, the woman, and it was a woman who painted this portrait. I Johanna, love it. It's amazing. Johanna van Lersel. And her granddaughter lives in Vienna. And that is who we spent an afternoon and evening with while we were there on that tour. And she kept her grandmother's letters from Hope Kirk's husband. Because Hope Kirk's husband was coaching her in landscape painting. Johanna was a brilliant portrait painter. Wow. But she wanted to learn landscape. So she became very close to, the, to Hope Kirk and her husband. Right. And, um, and then her diaries. I, I think I talked to you about her diaries when we yeah. were in Vienna that, yeah. you know, her, she, she was about 30 when she was uh, corresponding with Hope Kirk and Wilson and getting together with them in Hallstatt. But she was really trying to build her own career and was so frustrated that she felt like she needed a studio of her own where she could paint undisturbed. And she finally got one painting accepted at a show. And that was a, you know, that page in her diary, big day, you know, this painting has been accepted. Wow. But yeah, you know, it just, she was up against the patriarchy. Right. And just like Hope Kirk was. Right. And one of the quotes from Hope Kirk, which I used at the beginning of, my doctoral paper was all I want is a fair field and no favor that I want my music to be regarded as men's music is oh. not because I'm a woman, but be right. for the sake of the music. Right. Isn't that the, isn't that what they say? It's not, it's not um, because I'm a woman. It's not because of anything else. It's because my music is amazing in general or my acting or my, my literature, whatever. You just want to be on a level playing field with no because of in yes. front of it. And, and, and then and the fact that you said that you knew that she was active in the suffragette movement just shows how deep that, that feeling was of just wanting equality and looked at as a human and not yes. as a woman that does music or anything else, just like, no, this woman is a musician. And, and did you find out, go back a little bit with her story as far as like, how old was she? Cause she, she was born in Glasgow, lived there. And then how old was she when she, when they immigrated? Oh, she was 40. Let's see. She was born in 1856 in a little town just outside of Edinburgh. She was oh, actually oh. born in Portobello. Okay. And um, she went to Leipzig to conservatory when she was 19. So what is that, 1875? And she and her husband, he, oh, he really supported her career. He left his position to be her manager. And so she did two big American tours. And, oh. you know, she did get great reviews as a concert pianist. 
And the late 19th century, more and more women were able to perform and concertize. And, uh, and then she decided that she needed to stop performing. She was in her mid thirties, stop performing and improve her piano playing. She felt like something was missing from her own piano playing. So they moved to Vienna so she can study with a particular teacher. And I I have to say these letters back and forth and Johanna's diaries are part in German, part in English. They were, you know, and they probably knew French also. Yeah. And it's just, it's embarrassing now that some of us, all we can talk in is English and we don't know a variety of languages, but she spent about a year and a half just studying and perfecting her playing. And because her teacher thought so highly of her. Now, here we go. He says, she's the finest female woman musician I've ever met. So even he had to qualify. Yeah. yeah. But um, he recommended that she study composition as well. So she had done a little composing in the past, but this is where she really started to work on her composing and, and composing bigger works like piano sonatas for violin and piano and right. um, more sophisticated songs, not just like folk songs based on Scottish ballads. So they went, they went from there to London and in 1897, early 1897, she was planning to take two concertos she had written. I mean, these are big pieces for piano and orchestra, huge pieces, lots of notes. And she was going to take these two pieces to America and hopefully find an orchestra to play them. And she would be the soloist. So uh, what would that be? 1856 to uh, 97. She was 41. Right. About a week before she was to leave, her husband was hit by a cart in Leicester Square in London and suffered a very bad head injury. So she had to postpone everything, put everything on hold. And uh, he recovered enough that by the summer, she could take him to Switzerland to a place where they used to vacation and, you know, let him recuperate. And then they went to Boston. And in the meantime, she started writing her contacts in Boston. Uh-huh. And one of her former classmates from Leipzig was now the dean of, or the president of the New England Conservatory of Music. So he offered her a position. I see. So they, she moved, they moved to Boston when she was 41. And she joined the faculty at the Boston Conservatory and lasted three years (laughs) because she couldn't stand being held to an hour lesson. You know, she'd start to teach and the bell would ring for classes to change. And she wasn't done with that student yet. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, she's an artist. You can't put a timeline on that creativity. Right, right. So she just started teaching in her own private studio and and everybody knew she was the person to study with. So she always had a class of students. Okay. But she really, it was her responsibility to support them because her husband no longer was able to, uh, well, I mean, there's just one rabbit hole after another. He was part owner of a company in Scotland and 
the, the other owner was running the company and sending Hope Kirk and, and Wilson, her husband, like interest on the stocks they owned oh, all, right. all these years. So that's, right. they were able to live on that. Right. Well, the, the month before she was going to come to America, the month before her husband fell and got hit in the head, the company went bankrupt. Oh. So that source of income was gone. Right. So it was really up to her to do the teaching and make, you know, you don't get much money for performing. I don't mm -hmm. care, except unless you're Horowitz or somebody. Yeah. But this, you know, it's so much like a friend of ours who was a German composer who we both studied with. We both took lessons with her in uh, New York City. Her husband would lose money on the stock market and he was a painter, but he never sold paintings. And so it was up to her to support them. And she did that by teaching private students, by teaching at NYU. And she still was, and she was also trying to compose because what she really wanted to do was compose. Wow. She, she was an incredible teacher. We learned so much from her, but I just kept thinking, you know, we've just found out these facts about the bankruptcy and all of that just right. in the past few months. And I keep uh -huh. thinking of our friend Ruth and it's a similar situation. Exactly. Where the woman is responsible yeah. for, you know, paying the bills and, yeah. and, um, you know, I have to say, Renee, I listened to some of your, uh, Interview with the 21st century saints oh, ladies yeah. in Scotland. Uh huh. I could never have raised six kids. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> to me that is so awesome. <laughs> but I, I know that you felt like, you know, give me some credit here for this amazing yeah. thing I'm doing. Yeah. And um, so these, you know, I think of these women who are trying to follow. Uh, a real talent yeah, and a, and a real, it's their spirit. It's their soul. Right. They need to create. Right. And yet at the same time, they've got to be supporting yeah. the household. Yeah. And you do hear that so many times. There's the, the, the men that get the opportunity to be creative or pursue their, their love or, or, you know, get their degree and whatever, you know, and, and they've got, and even when they start a business, there's so many, I, I was so fortunate to not be talented in that area in, a, in any way. And, you know, you'll see these, these men and they, cause I used to go to, with my husband to the, the conferences for his business and the men, the women were always the bookkeepers. They were taking care of all the books. They were doing payroll. They were doing all the scheduling. They were keeping that business afloat and the men were doing the business, you know? And you see that all the time. And then you'll go to the conventions and they'll be like, well, Mr. Jones, Mr. Jones is the president of this company. And, you know, he's got 3000 employees and blah, blah, blah. Absolutely no recognition whatsoever for his wife that sits behind and makes sure that the company stays functioning. And, and there was even a, um, gosh, what was I watching the other day? But it was the same thing. Her husband had struggled and she was keeping the business afloat while he was, you know, doing all of his stuff. And that's just so common. And, and when you get into a, um, in fact, I just listened to a podcast yesterday. It was a fabulous podcast about a, a wonderful um, theologian who had just died. Um, I don't, I don't know exactly what the cancer was, but it started out in her eye 
and then it eventually metastasized and she just died last year. But she was fortunate enough to get a lot of her education before she married. She didn't marry until her 30s. And then they had three children. So she was able to kind of get that background, that stuff underneath that you need before, you know, because I have a lot of friends that got their bachelor's degree. They may have even started on their master's before they started having children. And then once the kids got into school, they could like, oh, I'm going to go back and finish my master's degree or whatever, because they had that undergraduate stuff done. But to start from scratch, you know, with and it's what I loved about this podcast was that this woman has set up a foundation now to support women with young children if they want to go back to school, because she saw how difficult it was to be you know, like you say, the breadwinner or the one that's taking care of the family so that the husband can, you know, go on and probably be, a, you know, the breadwinner or whatever. But anyway, it's a, did Helen have children then? It doesn't sound no. like she did. No. Yeah. And, and it never came up. Never. So you don't know necessarily why or if it was a choice or anything like that. Hard to decide if it was a choice in 1870 something, but yeah, but interesting. So and now listening to and then and then I could see where how how much information do you have on her work in the suffragette movement? Just a just a side note. Just, uh, uh, her her notes are notes of her students who interviewed her, but then uh, one of her colleagues, Mabel Daniels. Uh, was really big in in uh, the suffragette movement in Boston, and and Mabel had just gotten herself one of those new tootling cars, you know, and she invited Hope Kirk to ride with her uh-huh. in the car. Well, first of all, here's a woman driving one of these cars in the parade, and Hope Kirk sitting next to her, and uh, Mabel Daniels goes on for pages in her diary, oh and. Um, you know, we turned this corner and we saw these people and there were flags and, you know, just describing the whole parade. Yeah. And I mean, it would be wonderful. We may put it in the end notes. It's just, it's so exciting to read this woman's reaction to being in, in this parade and how supportive everybody was and ended up saying, I, I can't imagine that this won't pass oh. with, with all this excitement. Yeah, I think the men are on our side. Oh, wow. So, huh. That's amazing. So take me back because listening, it just absolutely kills me that I didn't get a chance to listen to your and Gary's playing until, you know, here we are back home again. And, and I think to myself, was there not a piano anywhere when we were in Vienna or Berlin? (laughs) Did, Did we not have, did we miss an opportunity? Because I, I'm just blown away. It, it, all of the arts, the people that can draw and paint and, and are musically inclined, that's just my, oh, those are the people that I just, because I know that it's, um, it's just a God-given talent that then has to be, you know, watered and fertilized. And, but these, the people that have this gift, I just feel like it's, it's just this, this, you just you're born with it. So so tell me um, a little Dana. Tell me little Dana's story. Uh, growing up, did you grow up with a, a musical family? Did everyone play the piano or uh, what's this? Where, where did you grow up and what was your musical background before all of this wonderfulness? Both of my parents uh, played music. My mother sang and played the piano and my father played violin. And they both had parents who made sure they got good training in these little bitty towns in Oklahoma. My mother was in Southwestern Oklahoma, if I 
father was up in Northeast near outside of Tulsa. Yeah, and this was during the depression. There wasn't a lot of money, but, but their parents made money available for them to have lessons. And for, especially for my father to have a violin because in my mother's family and the extended family, everybody played piano. So, you know, they had an old upright and um, mother went to college as a music major and then um, decided I'm not good enough to be a music major. And she switched to home ec. Oh, of course she did. And she's, her brain fell into place and she knew her place and she knew that that was the only thing she was going to ever do. So that makes sense. She said, you know, I just can't wait to get married and have children and use all this information I'm learning. Well, she was like you. She loved having babies. (laughs) She loved having a baby. But when we got to be about nine years old, you know, we were kind it's just we, not as fun when they're than when they get unless we age. can help babysit. <laughs> but um, but she always played, and she taught me to read music oh. using a little toy xylophone and a blackboard. We didn't yeah. have a piano. Yeah, and and finally, right before I started second grade, when I was seven, she and my father went out and shopped for the best piano they could afford. And uh, you know, she said, "We're going to have a visitor tomorrow." And we all, you know, I, at that point, I was had two younger sisters. And uh, I said, oh, what is it? What is it? And you just have to wait. And then they delivered this piano. And I sat down and she showed me where middle C was. And since I already could read music, I just started playing. No. So I learned the first few little pieces and teaching little fingers to play. And then she... She called the best teacher in Tulsa, who also happened to be like four blocks away from us, and just bargained and bargained with her about getting me on her schedule because this woman, everybody was studying with her. Yeah. So Margaret Freeze put me in at 8 a.m. on Monday mornings. And uh, my first lesson, I went in with my little book and the little pieces I had learned. And she listened to me play them one time by myself. And she said, okay, play through them again. And she went to her second piano and started playing an accompaniment to them. And I still get a chill when I tell this story. I thought this is the best thing ever. And I loved, I've always loved playing with other people, whether it's Gary or a singer or an instrumentalist. I've always preferred that to playing by myself. Oh my gosh! Because you can just hear what the what the harmony, uh, how more than one person, what that does. You can just hear it and feel it. Yeah, and you get the energy of the other person, and then yeah. that ignites your energy. There's just something about it. I just really love, and I always have. And um, I love working in groups. I I'm not a good solo worker, you know, regardless of what the project is. Interesting. And, so, um, you know, I got after, I mean, I could read music really quickly and easily. And by the time I was, I don't know, in the third or fourth grade, I could accompany my father because that was part of their courtship. My mother would play piano and my father would play violin. You know, they'd play pieces together. Mm-hmm. So then I was able to do that with him. 
And I just thought, yeah, this is so wonderful. Yeah. And uh, my sisters, they all, I have three younger sisters and a younger brother. Every one of them is musical, but nobody pursued it like I did. Okay. Um, one sister can play by ear, and, but she's really a talented artist. Uh, so yeah. she created two of the covers for our CDs. Oh, my gosh. And um, another sister is just such a gifted dancer. She was danced with the Dallas Metropolitan Ballet. And again, my mother got her into that school because mm-hmm. Trish said, I'm going to take dance lessons even if I have to walk. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> so, you know, that's, yeah, my parents really were so supportive in that way. That's what I was going to say. They were so supportive. And I love that they supported them in their individual gifts. Yes. That it wasn't like, no, doggone it. Everybody in this family is going to play the piano. It's like, what do you want to be? What do you want to yeah. do? Yeah. That's amazing. But, yes. and, but I also love the fact that this was, I mean, nobody was like, go, you know, mom was not going outside demanding that you come in and practice piano. This, this was a love that you had that nobody had to, you know, bait you into at all. Oh, well, there were, there were times, I mean, I, she set a time for me every morning when I was in elementary school Oh, okay. in the very beginning, 15 minutes before we left for school. Okay. So she, she always set up schedules for us. Right. And at one time I was so angry about a piece. I couldn't get it. It was not coming for me. And I was throwing fits and saying, I don't want to take piano anymore. And she says, good, I'm tired of listening to you. <laughs> well, of course, <laughs> I'm not going to quit. <laughs> very, she was a very smart cookie about things like that. Exactly. So, so when you were in high school, um, did you use it at all at school? I mean, were you were you accompanying the choir or anything like that? You did in, in junior high and high school. Yeah, Gary and I both did that. Okay. Now yeah. you didn't. Did you know each other in high school? Had no, you, no. He he grew up outside of Allentown, Pennsylvania, and oh. um, I even though I was born in Texas, um, we spent the first ten years of my life in Tulsa. Okay. And then when I was 10, we moved, my father got transferred to Dallas. So in Dallas, that's where my piano training really kicked into high gear because I was studying with a, a young woman who was a concert pianist. Oh. And um, I don't know that I would have gone as far as I did with music if, if we had stayed in Tulsa. Oh. But um, she... It's hard to explain. She was an odd teacher. She was not very verbal. Yeah. So you had to just kind of watch and listen to her and and then do what she did, which Uh, isn't the best way to learn. But I was a hard worker. Yeah. And by that time, uh, by the time I was in the, see, my brother was born when I was 12. Okay. So there's a big range there. And there are three kids in between. And at that point, I felt like I had to make a niche for myself somehow. Yeah. And music was, by that time, music also was a habit, you oh, know, yeah. if nothing else. Right. And I did, I did really like it. I did really, there were pieces now that I could play that I'd always wanted to play. And, oh. uh, but again, mother would say, you're going to practice during these times. Right, right. And I think that's very helpful. Right. You know, it's... um 
setting a schedule and yeah. letting a child know you've got to have the discipline yeah to practice at this time yeah because if you they, just they, leave yeah they need to know what's expected and yeah. and if and if you do create a pattern then it just becomes part of life and right. um yeah. so yeah that's amazing so so you moved to dallas now where are you in your education you graduated from high school are you now going to pursue your music well, degree your undergraduate dallas. When I was in fifth grade. So I studied from fifth grade through high school with this woman in Dallas. And then she recommended that I study with one of her colleagues who was at LSU in Baton Rouge. Wow. And it was, it was a really good choice for me because he was such a different teacher. I mean, she gave me technique. I had technique and you know I had won some little high school competitions and things but he just brought joy to the whole thing and he was a wonderful teacher and but he knew how to bring out your own joy with it and your own best approach to it right right. and I adored that man if he had told me to go jump in the Mississippi River I would have done it okay I'll be back oh my gosh And so, uh, so you head off to Louisiana to, to go to school. You are just, yeah. you are just in the South, just, you know, Tulsa and Dallas and, and I, yeah. Louisiana. Yeah. That's a, so you, so you finished your, your bachelor's. And then and I went over to Austin, Texas for my master's. I went immediately into my master's work. Okay. And I'd always said that that's what I would do, that I'd get my bachelor's and master's and then, go off and teach for a while and then later go for my doctorate. I see. So that was kind of always in the background. Oh yes. Yes. That was very much my plan. Now, was there ever a time, because I remember we had a neighbor uh, when we lived in Oregon and they moved into the house next door and they had three or four kids and they had a daughter that played the piano and the windows were open. That was the most beautiful thing. You know, she's a fellow Arizonian, you guys. And so she, you understand the, the beauty of opening up your windows, you know, we don't do that a lot around here, but um, so, so, you know, the windows were open in, in Oregon and, and I could hear her playing and she, she did pretty well. Like you say, in high school, she went out to college and there, she's trying out to get into the music program. And that's when her eyes were open. That it's like, oh, I'm good in this little town in Oregon. I ain't so good up against these people, you know, and I've heard a lot of other people say that, that they were a big fish in a little pond and then they, they got out to college or whatever. And they, people from all over the country, you know, were, were trying to get into the same music program. Did you ever find that? Did you, when you went down to Louisiana, were you like, Oh, okay. I mean, was there ever a time where you were like, this is going to be hard. My, my teacher in Dallas said, you are not ready for Juilliard. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> and my mother said, you're not ready for New York City. I don't care what Monty Hill Davis says. Whatever that you're means. In New York City. Yeah. <laughs> but my teacher, Monty Hill Davis, my teacher said, nah, you're not ready for Juilliard. And she said, the only other person I would want you to study with besides the person in Baton Rouge was a teacher in Austin at the University of Texas. And he said, you're not ready for him either. I'm barely ready for him myself. Oh. So 
And she said it just about like that. <laughs> yeah, well, no mints and words, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. when I was supposed to play in a, it wasn't so much a competition, but it was a, uh, a Texas-wide where you would play for a judge and, and get comments back and then get a medal if you earned a certain number of points. And so I had my pieces ready and I played for her the day before I was to go play in this regional thing. And she listened to me. She says, well, I guess you'll do okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, okay. And I go and I play. And the judge writes, I have never heard such fine Mozart playing from a high school student. <laughs> and I thought, gee, he must not be very smart. <laughs> he must not. But here you are getting these two messages. Well, I guess exactly. you'll do. And then the other exactly. guy's like, wowza. You know, do you, yeah. did you ever apply for Juilliard? I mean, you probably were good enough to get into Juilliard. Do you think looking I, back? I don't, I don't think so. Um, Gary got into Juilliard. He all, I mean, Gary is just a whole nother story about being well, born to be story a pianist. So. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's the next um, but he, he found a teacher uh, in Bethlehem and just out, you know, the next city over from Allentown, it was actually his high school choir director said, you need to go study with this woman. Okay. And he had been studying with a little neighborhood teacher for four years. And, you know, he already surpassed what she could teach him. So she, his parents would drive him to Bethlehem every two weeks. And he had to have three hour lessons with this oh. woman who was a Juilliard graduate herself. Okay. And her goal was to get Gary into Juilliard. And um, she, she took him to Juilliard and had him play for one of her former classmates who was now on the faculty at Juilliard and pretty much said, you got to take Gary. He's going to be really good. Oh and God. so the guy took Gary into his class but I don't know that Gary would have gotten in otherwise. I have no idea. I guess I didn't hear Gary play back then. But Isn't that the world, though? It's who you know, right? It's not yeah. what you know. It's who you know. So okay. to answer your other question, when I got to LSU, I was a big fish in a medium pond. Okay. I was definitely – there were a, a couple of other pianists who were really good, really yeah. bright people, but um, I, I still was able to hold my own. Wow. And then when I went to Texas, it was up to an even bigger pond. Yeah. And that was more competitive. Yeah. But at that point, all I wanted to do was get my master's degree and graduate and get a job. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I, that's where I felt like, um, well, I... I took a variety of courses. I took a class in how to teach music theory mm. and also um, group piano where you have like 10 pianos, electronic pianos in a room and yeah. you teach uh, beginners in that way. So I, I got some, some skills under my belt that made me more marketable. I see. And so I got that job at the University of Houston is my first job. Okay. And I was busy in that job. I was teaching group piano, supervising teaching assistants, 
doing a lot of accompanying, you know, playing for instrumentalists and singers. And, um, and then I got married. Ah, done, done, done. <laughs> and then it all went to hell after that. No, <laughs> it did. It did. <laughs> the first mistake. But, but because I got married to somebody who wanted to get, he was getting his degree at Rice University in Houston. He got a postdoc out in Berkeley. So after one year of teaching in Houston, we moved to Berkeley. And I met this incredible pianist who had been Gary's best friend at Juilliard. Richard and I got to be really good friends. And we both moved to Los Angeles from Berkeley after a year in Berkeley. I had a job, I'd gotten a job at uh, USC and Richard was gonna work on his doctorate in piano at USC. He was the one person my husband could tolerate. Oh. If, you know, I, all my other friends that I had, my husband was not interested in them, but he really liked Richard. Okay. So uh, three years in LA and Richard and I, you know, were good friends and Richard was still, Richard and Gary were still talking long distance because Gary was still in New York. And I'd hear about Gary from Richard and Gary would hear about me from Richard. And after three years, Richard and I both just happened to move back to the East Coast. My husband was from New York originally, New Jersey, and he wanted to go back home. Okay. So Richard got a job teaching in a small school outside of Philadelphia. And my husband and I were living in New Jersey. And guess what? My husband wanted to do an internship. So there I was having to support us. Yes. Okay. Well, I, I had all these secretarial skills. My mother made me take typing and shorthand in high school, much against my desires. But so I went into New York City and I got myself a job. And I was commuting from New Jersey to New York City and back and forth. And uh, eventually, uh, our friend Richard came into the city and he and Gary and I got together for dinner one night. I thought Gary was the nicest person I had ever met in all my life. He kind of <laughs> is, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. He was such a good listener and asked such good questions and really listened. And uh, so he was saying that this was in May and he was saying that he was cut. And by this time he had, Oh no, I'm getting my years mixed up. No. Okay. So he was going to play a concert in New York city in two months. And I said, Oh, I want to, I really want to go to that concert. He said, Oh, great. Here's the information. So I go to this concert and he walks out on stage and starts playing. And I just, <laughs> just thought this is what I have been listening for my whole life. Oh my God. This, this way of playing, this sound, this interpretation of the music, everything. I just loved it. It just, I, cause I'd always been a little frustrated about playing. Yeah. I never got to the point where pieces sounded the way I could hear them in my head. Wow. He was playing the way I heard things in my head. Yes. And I hear uh, that. I hear that from when, like when we were on the tour and they would talk about Beethoven and Mozart and how they got to get it out of my head. I, it's all up there. 
and you hear that so often. Yeah. 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 So we stayed in touch for a couple of years. He was still concertizing and, um, you know, traveling to playing in England and Hungary and all over the place, but he would send me postcards and he'd just say, hi, I just want to stay in touch. And um, so then after about two years, he got the job at Mount Holyoke College mm. and he came down, I guess this is when we had dinner with a second dinner with Richard and, and Gary said, I'm going to be coming to the city. He still had an apartment. He says, I'll be in the city for the summer. And he said, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to jogging. Oh, okay. And I said, oh, I'll jog with you. Give me a call when you get to the city. I'll jog with you. And he goes, oh, great. Okay. So I go to work the next day, you know, at the office where I'm administrative assistant. And I said to a friend, you've got to teach me how to jog in the next two weeks. <laughs> oh, you're doing, a, you're doing a marathon next Saturday? I'd love to join you. No problem. <laughs> So she took me to a really good uh, athletic shoe store and helped me pick out shoes. And she said, now what you do is you walk 50 steps, you run 50 steps. You just keep alternating and build up your endurance. Okay. So that was before we started dating. That's what we did. We ran up and down Riverside Park in New York City at 630 in the morning. Oh and, you know, just it was Great way to get to know somebody. I was going to say, but in the meantime, what have you done with the husband? Oh, I divorced. Okay, I, so I divorced. divorced. Okay, so he was long. He's like, this isn't working, dude. I'm just telling yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. That's, you go do that's, your apprentice thing and you figure out how to do this. And in the meantime, I'm going to go to work. And exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's good. So and that, that was that was right after New York's uh, New York State adopted no fault divorce. Oh. So it was pretty simple. Yeah. No children was, involved. You guys weren't, you know, we didn't have a lot of equity and things that we had to break up. And it's like, you go your way. I'll go mine. Goodbye. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So smart though. So smart. I just, my husband and I were just talking about that, that, you know, there, it, there used to be, I mean, when my dad and my, my stepdad and my mom got married, um, you know, he was from England and he had, he was the baby of the family, he had three sisters and his mother was just, you cannot marry a divorced woman you know, that type of thing. So that's still that stigma, you know, um, back in those days, but she was, I mean, she was, gosh, dad was born in, in 27. So, you know, so she's, she's way back there that she still has that mentality, but well, I, I have to tell you, I've got three sisters. All four of us have been divorced. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. wish people understood that it, you know, in fact, I was just listening to another podcast and this guy was saying, why did you put up with that for so long? This lady was talking about her husband. She said, you know, there is this thing called divorce, you know, and it's like, oh, anyway, so that's fabulous. Okay. So now have you played with Gary yet? I mean, is there, has there been a four hands thing? Oh, yet? oh my gosh. So, you know, we dated our <laughs> We were talking to one of the couples on the tour, comparing notes on courtship. Yeah. And uh, uh, I said, well, for our first day, Gary took me to see war games. Oh. <laughs> and, you know, I lived, you know, just a few blocks from Lincoln Center. And by that time, I was working for the conductor of mostly Mozart and the 92nd Street Y. I'd left the job for the big company and I was just working as his assistant. 
So anyway, Gary goes to Lincoln Center and buys a mostly Mozart t-shirt about this color, but with mostly Mozart across it. And we, he didn't come to my apartment to pick me up. He says, let's meet at, at 76th and Broadway. Okay, fine. You know, it's New York City. That's what people do. Yeah. So I walk up there and he has a brown paper bag in his hand. He goes, here. <laughs> and it's the t-shirt. <laughs> he can play the piano really well, but romance? <laughs> Maybe. It didn't matter. I mean, the way he played the piano, like, oh, gosh. That's exactly right. It's like that joke where they say we're where, you, you know, this guy married this woman. She wasn't really much of a looker, but she could sing. And he woke up one morning and he leaned over and he said, sing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like. <laughs> I've never heard that story. That is really good. Oh, my gosh. So yes. you guys have been married for, what, 30-something uh, years, right? Yeah, 38. We got married in 1985. Okay, yeah. And um, we got engaged after um, I made an appointment with him. Uh, I said, let's, let's go meet in Central Park and talk about whether we have a future. Oh. And I gave him a list of questions to consider. <laughs> this is how Gary functions the best. Guys, could you women start taking notes? This is what you have to do, okay? At some point. You gotta, you gotta do this. That's so funny. So, so we met, and it was a beautiful Sunday afternoon in Central Park in the summer, and we sat out on a blanket, probably had some snacks, and and went through this list of questions. And I said, "So, what do you think?" And he said, "Well, I think I might be ready to possibly talk about getting hitched." Possibly, maybe, someday, could have. Okay. Yeah, right, right. So that's just Gary. I mean, you have to give him time to think things through. Yeah. And two weeks yeah. later, he'll come back and answer it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, so that was in the summer. And we were going to go to Dallas for Christmas so he could meet my parents. Okay. And right before we were going to leave, I said, you know, they would get such a kick out of it if we played some forehand for them. Because I used to play duets with my mother. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know, and then I played with my father. And so I didn't have any music. But Gary had done some forehand playing with some of his colleagues at Juilliard. Yeah. So he pulled out some music. And the first piece he pulled out was this little piece by a French composer of the 1920s. Very sardonic. Yeah. It it's, takes five minutes to play it, but it has three movements. And he called it a sonata, like it was a big yeah. piece. Yeah. And it starts out with Gary in the middle of the keyboard, just doing a rhythmic chordal thing. Da, 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 da. And I'd never, I didn't know the piece. I was just sight reading and I'm looking at it and I'm thinking in four bars, I have to reach across him like this and lean down because I got to play notes at each end of the keyboard is the first time I'd ever played with him. I was so mortified. <laughs> but, so you're at the same piano. You're not at and we're you're the not same at, piano. So yeah. Oh my gosh. And you're like, Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. So you're like, so, okay, I'm going in. Here we go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so um, what was so sweet was that then uh, we had a fairly small wedding 
but um, and we made the invitations ourselves. We took the first line and the title of that piece and had it reduced down and reproduced on little cardstock, and and then wrote handwritten invitations to oh people. So you know, the very first piece we ever played together became the front piece of our invitation. Yeah, and yet, that's so amazing. After all of the courtship and the conversation. And that still, it was that piano piece that, that actually brought you guys together to finalize the whole thing. I love that story. That's yeah. Amazing. And then we played at our own wedding. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> don't need to hire music. We'll take care of that. Yeah, we'll take care of it. <laughs> so after you got married then, now you're married. And did you, did you stop the administrative work and then go back more into teaching? Did you continue the piano? A more I piano started piece? my doctorate in music. Oh, so right away he was like... Before we even got married, I started the doctorate in September. We got married in October. Okay. You know, let, let's, let's put more pressure. Let's just see how much pressure we can. Yeah, no big deal. Yeah. And 10 years. Ten, now, why 10 years? I mean, I know doctorates are, are like you say, that's, it's a toughie. You've got to kind of check out of the real world. Um, but what was it that, that took it for 10 years? I, I got through all of the academic stuff in two years. Okay. You know, you, you have to take what they call comprehensive exams okay. at the end of two years. So I got those out of the way, but I still had these recitals to play and I still had the paper to write, you know, the, oh, yeah. the thesis to right, write. Right. And um, still pretty much in the early stages of researching Hope Kirk and still finding resources. And I needed, I, I still was doing, te I was teaching through the community division of the music school. So I was still going down there several days a week to teach, but there was no reason for me to be there otherwise. Oh, I see. And I had blown through three piano teachers there, didn't get a thing from any of them except grief. Yeah. And was having to figure out how am I going to prepare the next two recitals? And, um, you know, just being with Gary, playing with Gary and having Gary listen to me and coach me was helpful. Yeah. But um, also Gary, when Gary was doing competitions, he had coached with a man in England and Ben would come to New York for three, two or three weeks and set up an apartment and all the Juilliard students would moonlight with him because he was oh. such a fabulous teacher. Wow. So I took lessons with him too. Oh my God. And, uh, <laughs> but, so, um, but that's part of the doctorate is you actually have to singly solo perform in front of a panel, like a group. Uh, well, of an audience, an uh, audience. Okay. You're, so you're, yeah. not, not just the five people that are on your doctoral, you know, board or whatever, right. You actually right. have to perform in front of an audience and then is the board in the audience and then they're yes. judging by yeah. how the audience responds and the whole bit and no, just how they respond. <laughs> they could care less what the audience thinks. Okay. 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 And you have a certain number of recitals that you have to do. Do you have to arrange for these recitals or do they? Yes. You have, yes. and then you have, do you have to advertise and get an audience? Uh, 
Well, the advertising was primarily, people put posters up around the school, but okay. you know, only your best friends are going to come. Okay. And okay. then, you know, send out invitations to other people who might come in. Okay. okay. Uh, no pressure. Wow. Uh, it, it's, it's unbelievable. So, so did, so you got your, um, did you get your recitals done before you got your thesis done? Yes. Okay. Yes. So now you're, yeah, I got those, I got them out of the way. And then <laughs> it was, I started the degree in 85 in January of 95. I called my professor and I said, you think I might graduate in May? And he was, he was from Vienna. So he had a German accent, very loud voice. He says, you haven't given me anything to read yet. Oh, I can just hear it. I can just hear it. Yeah. So I pretty much wrote, except when I had to teach, I just sat at, at the computer and wrote and wrote and wrote. And, you know, I would go two days and not change clothes if yeah. I wasn't teaching. You and had because done, we, had, we had all the information that's together. That's what I was going right? to say. You had yeah. done the research. You just needed now to put it all together. Yes. And yeah. how long is this thesis? What, well, the biography part of it is about 100 pages. Okay. Um, what I did was write a biography of her. And then as much, and then I had an uh, index of her piano pieces, all the piano pieces that we were able to locate. And then... One of those big concertos that she had written for piano and orchestra was never published. Oh. And it was in her handwriting. It was in sketches at the Library of Congress. Okay. So there was a conductor score, which shows all the instrumentation plus the piano part. There were the orchestra parts, like what the part that the flute would play, the individual part, the oboe would play. And, um, then they were her reduction of all of that into the piano solo and the second piano, which tries to imitate the orchestra. Mm. So this is very common. Composers will do this. You'll have for, for rehearsal purposes, you'll have the orchestra reduced to something that a second piano can play sounding like the orchestra and they'll play with the soloist. So we had all of these scores in her handwriting never been published. There were discrepancies among the scores. So I had to go through and identify, I had pages and pages, measure one, beat three. Wow. On the orchestra score has this, on the piano score it has this, on the flute part it has this. And any discrepancies, I notated all of that. And then I made decisions about which of those was probably what she would have wanted in the final okay. version. Okay. And by that time there was music publishing software. Yeah. And so Gary bless his heart. He input all of this for the final uh, thesis. It, the final thesis has one page of her score in her handwriting, but the rest of it is, you know, looks like regular published music. Yeah. Thanks to Gary. And then have you performed it? He has. And if you go online to our web, or if you just Google Helen Hopekirk okay. Concertstück, it, it's at our website okay. under the Hopekirk heading. Okay. He played it with the Mount Holyoke Orchestra. Oh. It's, it's an awkward piece 
to program for a regular orchestra because it's 20 minutes long. Wow. And that's more time than most conductors want to devote to one piece on an orchestral yeah. program. Yeah. But it was so perfect. You know, Mount Holyoke College is an all-women's college. Oh. And he was a revered professor in the music department. And, you know, everybody knew he was a fabulous pianist. And so finally, uh, the... The last, the latest conductor who had the orchestra at Mount Holyoke was a really innovative conductor and he was gung-ho to do this piece. So I think it was Gary's last year at Mount Holyoke. They did the piece and those students, they just went to town on the orchestra part because it was romantic. It, It was so lush. And, you know, these are liberal arts students. These aren't conservatory students. And right. they did such a wonderful job. Oh, my gosh. Well, so that is that's amazing. Yeah, that's online. Um, and he also, there's also at our website, um, right before we moved from Massachusetts, he recorded a number of Hope Kirk solo piano oh. music. Oh. And it is, it's just wonderful. It's wonderful playing. Right. And it's you know, it's music that you don't hear very often. Right. right. It has her personal stamp on it. You know, you can hear Scottish inflections in it and it's, Interesting. it's gracious and it's um, powerful. And um, I was reading the painter, you know, Johanna's diary uh, one day when she was up in Scotland staying with Hope Kirk and Wilson and Hope Kirk was practicing. And Lursel says, Hope Kirk is such a flower. Oh. Isn't that beautiful? It's yeah. just, it's, I've yeah. never heard that description ever, but right. she was a strong woman, but she also had this grace and beauty about her, as wow. does her music. Yeah. Well, that's beautiful. I I just love that that that, and this is one of the things I love about women is as you were pursuing your own path to become visible and to just acknowledge and procure these talents that you know you've been given and you now want to be the best that you can be. And then, but then what you did was you took her and you said, and now she needs to be seen. This is, this is someone who needs to be recognized. So it's that classic story of, of, you know, the women, you know, empowering other women and how that was your, you know, that was your goal. And I, I just, this is what I think I love the most about your story was that you chose her to be your focus for your doctoral and, and that, and what, that what you've done, how this person would have just, if you wouldn't have done this, she would have just gone into obscurity. And, and now she's, you know, in Scotland recognized, you know, for her music and, and the history of her, um, her work and, and it's because of your work that 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 happened. And I just think that's amazing. So and what's wonderful is other women have picked up on it now. Oh. And other women are, are citing her in their works, whether it's dissertations or books on women in music. So, so that's very gratifying. That is. That would be amazing. The The BBC uh, interview that you did, is that something on that you can find on YouTube? Have you ever looked? I've never looked because this was back in 1990, maybe. Okay, interesting. But um, 
Gee, but if I, I don't know. Like you say, if I Google her, uh, then I can find your work, right? I mean, probably a lot of the stuff that your background information is probably in her Google search, right? I, I hope so. We never check it that way. It's, I mean, we've got a significant amount at our website. And tell everyone what your website is, too. Interwoven4, F-O-U-R. Okay. A dot com. Dot com. Okay. Yeah. Interwoven4.com. Okay. But that's a, you know, I haven't thought about that BBC tape in so long. Interesting. I'm, I hope we have it somewhere in a box stashed yeah. away. Yeah. You have to find it and see if you can yeah. transfer it. Well, this this has just been an absolute pleasure. And I'm so, look, I have to show you my T-shirt. It's like, ta-da. Oh, weird. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I forget oh, what this little guy, what's he called? I can't remember what he was called. Uh, am, am something. Am, am, am something. Ask Gary, he'll know. Yeah, I'll look it up. But yeah, I have I I got it when we were there in Berlin, and then I never wore it, and I just now I'm like, oh, somebody that's been in Berlin would recognize this, you know. Oh, so I'll have to wear it, it this summer. But anyway, it's just a thrill to have met you and Gary, and I love I love how he is definitely the wind beneath your wings, and so supportive, and just the the. Um, but I love the companionship because you're both pursuing your own things. But that you're the perfect example of supporting each other as you're going along, you know, and like you, know, you say, for him yeah, to say, uh, go, go get your law degree, you know. Yeah. And even in performing, you know, people comment on how even though we're in absolute unity, mm-hmm. I bring one kind of character to it. He brings another and then it integrates. Exactly. So. Yeah. Renee, this has just been so much fun. It's been so fun. Now, will you and Gary be performing anywhere at any time? I mean, you're not that far away. I would drive down to Tucson in a heartbeat. Are you guys going to be performing? We do little soirees in our home. Do you really? (laughs) And you play? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, In fact, we're doing that this weekend if you want to drive down this weekend because we're getting ready for this concert in Colorado. Oh. And so we do what we call tryouts. For friends. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, oh, let me know more about that concert in Colorado. That sounds like a fun reason to to head over to the Rockies. Lake City. Yeah. When? When are you going to be there? Um, we're playing July 10. Okay. All right. I'll yeah, it's a Monday and it's elevation 8,600 feet. <laughs> oh, does that make it's a difference? I mean, when you're playing. Mountains. Yeah, we, uh, we're going to get there a couple of days early. And um, friends have told us to take this chlor oxygen that oxygenates your blood so that you can adapt to the high altitude. That's crazy. People Isn't don't it? understand how much that affects everything. You know, it's uh, I know I went on a little hiking thing last year and there was one lady that got there early. And uh, she didn't, she was, she got there a couple of days early trying to acclimate. And the day that we were all supposed to meet and start the hike, she said, I, I can't do this. I feel she had altitude sickness already. And just, I'm sure people are, some people are more sensitive. I brought my little cans of oxygen just in case, but I never felt anything. You know, I, I never oh. really, I mean, I don't know if I did. I never, I never know whether it's a, you know, that is that whole causation thing. Do I just not feel good or was it the oxygen that made me, I don't know. I never could figure that out, but anyway, but I've heard so many things, but I never even thought about even something as 
but there's strenuousness to this piano playing there. It's there's oh my gosh, yeah, your whole physical being is there. So there, yeah, there's a whole thing. So yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, uh, I mean, sometimes we just do a soiree, just okay, you know, for fun. Yeah. So I'll I'll keep you on the list. Yes, please let us know because well, we love Tucson anyway. It's a great place to go. We usually haul our motorcycles down there and Bisbee. We love Bisbee. And so, oh, yeah, yeah, that's a fun yeah. place to go. So, well, this has just been amazing. It's been so fun to reconnect and, and everyone yes. go to interwoven4.com and look at their work and listen. Listen, I mean, I, I am uh, not a musician, but I love music. And it's so funny because I cannot carry a tune for the life of me. And I didn't know that I couldn't carry a tune because I used to sing to, you know, Anne Murray, I'd be putting up decorations or cleaning the house or whatever. And I'd have Anne Murray blaring and I'm singing along with her. And I'm thinking, yeah, me and Anne Murray, we're good, you know? And then we got a karaoke machine <laughs> and I'm listening to this voice and I'm thinking, is there... Is there something wrong with this microphone? <laughs> What's going on? Is that and I am literally like, you know, and the sitcoms when you hear that person singing and they're like, ah, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that, that wasn't even close, you know, but I feel like I can hear it. So if yes. I'm listening to music, I'm like, oh, that was off, you know, and it makes me so angry because I have a mother who sang, grew up harmonizing her and her sister, you know, would go to carnivals and not carnival, but you know, amusement things. They would sing together and beautiful voice. She plays the piano by ear. She's never had any kind of training. And, and I'm like, did I get any genes at all? I mean, she paints, she's never had any official training, but she's, she's got like a built-in perspective thing that she can do. And I'm like, I so got one side of that family. I got the DNA that was just like, I'm going to sell you a car and that's my, no, you know? <laughs> no way. Oh, I tell you, I was mesmerized by, by the way you dressed in oh, on the tour. You. Just, Oh my gosh. Well, that, that is a, that is a weakness. In fact, my husband and I are heading out. We're going to, we're going to try this snowbird thing. And uh, so we're, I'm packing up and I said to him, I don't know how to do this because I don't know, how do I leave these clothes here and take these clothes with me for four or five months? What if I want to wear this and it's in Arizona and I'm in Utah? And and so the poor guy, he had to take a whole rental truck to take some of our furniture and stuff up there, plus two boxes of clothes that I might just want to wear while I'm up there. But the, the bad thing about the snowbird thing is it's summer in Arizona, but it's also summer where we're going. So it's not like, oh, I'm going to leave my winter clothes there and leave my summer clothes down here. And um, so, yeah, it's not a good thing. It's a, it's a curse, really. <laughs> you know how to put things together so beautifully. Well, thank you. Thank and you, you know so how to wear them, too. Oh, you're so sweet. <laughs> well, That's, thank you yeah. so much. Tell Gary we said hi. And and uh, did he get over? I know he got kind of got stricken when we were over there. Got a little bit of the Thank you. Um, yeah, he's much better now. He's back to running. And yeah, he's good. Did he run yeah. at all when, when we were in Berlin and stuff? Did he go out no. for a jog? No. No. Yeah. No. That's uh different. we did a lot of walking. You know, my little my little Fitbit thing, you know, we, I think we averaged around 13,000 steps every day. And so my little average will come up and I'll say, you're not doing the same thing you were a few weeks ago. And I'm like, yeah, no kidding. I'm not, you know, <laughs> so, that's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but we did. Well, take yeah. care and good luck with the snowbird adventure. Thank you. Thank you. And, and, and 
you know, best wishes for all of your adventures too. And I will, I'm going to get on my calendar and see what we're doing July 10th. So you might see us in Colorado. Oh, fun. Okay, great. Thank you, Dana. Bye, Renee. Bye-bye. Oh my gosh. Okay. Any of you that are musically inclined, um, I mean, when I sit and listen to someone with as much talent as, as she and Gary have, just, it's just one of those things that it just astounds me because I, uh, I, I tried to put my girls in piano lessons and um, my one daughter is a lot like my mom. She could play by ear. And the piano teacher said, she's not reading this music. She's playing by ear. That's not a good thing. <laughs> you know. And then my other daughter, she has been, she's actually now taking piano lessons still as an adult and has her kids in, in piano. So, but it's just definitely something that I just, I, I am fascinated just that two hands are doing two completely different things. I mean, that is, that's enough for me. But anyway, Dana is, is amazing. Her husband, Gary, they're lovely people. And I love her story of what she did with, with Helen um, Hope Kirk and look her up and look up, look up their work on interwoven4.com. And I love uh, Dana's story of how she became visible and how she uh, put herself on her trail and pursued her goals so intensely. And I love that. I love that Gary was a huge support for her. And I love that she brought Helen into visibility and that's what it's all about. So fun, fun podcast. And thank you so much, Dana, for joining me today. So I don't think I'll be seeing you next week because uh, it's the 4th of July that week. And, you know, we Americans, we kind of take, you know, it's, it's like, it's like those of us that turn the entire month, you know, whatever our birthday is, we turn it. In. I think the 4th of July turns into the whole week. I mean, I have a class that I take on Wednesdays and it's canceled because it's the 4th of July. And I'm like, yeah, but Wednesday's not the 4th of July. I think it's the 5th. But they're like, yeah, but it's canceled because it's the 4th of July. So obviously everyone's taking the whole week off. So I will not be podcasting next week, but the week after we'll have another fabulous She Became Visible. So thank you so much for joining me today and we'll see you again in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me today on She Became Visible. Join me each week as my guests and I explore the path of womanhood and tell all our stories. We'll talk about finding the courage to be ourselves and motivate each other to be everything that we're capable of and meant to be, no matter what happens around us. Please like, share, and subscribe, and don't forget to donate at She Became Visible.